this morning. Our reading is by the American writer and progressive activist Marge Piercy. Raised in a working class family in Detroit, she is the, the recipient of the Arthur C. Clarke Award. Her writing and activism was inspired by her Jewish heritage and centered on feminism, anti-war organizing, and environmentalism. Today, we read her poet entitled The Low Road. What can they do to you? Whatever they want. They can set you up, they can bust you, they can break your fingers. They can burn your brain with electricity, blur you with drugs till you can't walk, can't remember. They can take your child, wall up your lover. They can do anything, you can't stop them. From doing anything, how can you stop them? Alone, you can fight, you can refuse, you can take what revenge you can, but they will roll over you. But two people fighting back to back can cut through a mob, a snake dancing file can break a cordon. An army can meet an army. Two people can keep each other sane, can give support, conviction, love, massage, hope, sex. Three people are a delegation, a committee, a wedge. With four people, you can play bridge and start an organization. With six, you can rent a whole house, eat pie for dinner with no seconds, and hold a fundraising party. A dozen make a demonstration. A hundred fill a hall. A thousand have solidarity and your own newsletter. 10,000 power and your own paper. 100,000 your own media. 10 million your own country. It goes on one at a time. It starts when you care to act. It starts when you do it again and they say no. It starts when you say we and know who you mean. And each day, you mean one more. On February 18, 1917, the Reverend Dr. Frank Oliver Hall ascended the steps to this pulpit. The walk was well-traveled. Hall had been the minister of this congregation for 15 years, and by all accounts was well-liked, and well-respected, despite being described as somewhat dictatorial and blunt and austere. He also, though, represented a new kind of minister, one not concerned about the souls of his people, but also about the society that shaped them. Along with two others, he was called the conscience of New York, a moral and just voice in a city wrestling with entrenched poverty, racial and economic inequality, and new immigration. Paul believed, as we do today, that religion should have to do with reality. He was not afraid to talk about pressing issues of his time and what really mattered. And that day, as he ascended the pulpit, he was going to do just that. Now, sitting in the congregation that morning, 
looking up that hall, ascend those steps, was a man and his son. That man was Louis Ames Annan Ames, who was a powerful lay leader in the congregation. He would later serve on the Board of Trustees during the Great Depression, and the remains of his wife, Amy, currently rest in our chapel. Ames, in addition to his work, he was also the president of one of the largest flag manufacturing companies in the United States. His flags flew in the Union Army during the Civil War. They flew over Lincoln's inauguration and funeral, as well as for the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge and the first World's Fair. And the flag business was booming in 1917. Patriotism, because of the First World War, was everywhere. More and more Americans across the country were demanding that the United States enter the fray, send troops to France, and save Europe and the world from the German menace. Paul's sermon that day, relevant as he strived to be, was entitled Pro-American. We can imagine Ames nodding his head approvingly, imagining old glory, his flags flying over the Kaiser's Berlin in victory. But Hall's sermon was not what Ames expected, or what anyone else expected if they were anticipating a rousing call to arms. Defying expectations and the extreme social pressure of his time, Paul, in that sermon, came out against the war. To quote him that day, if there is anything this side of hell that ought to be hated off this earth, it is war. Therefore, with pride, I confess that I am a pacifist. The story goes that before had, Paul had a chance to finish his thought, Ames stood up grabbed his son by the hand, and walked out the front aisle of the church. Paul's pronouncement was so controversial, it didn't even stay in these walls. It made the newspapers. He was stripped of his title as chaplain to the Empire State Society of the Sons of the Revolution. And shortly thereafter, it is rumored that he left under pressure from Ames. Now, whether today we agree with Hall looking back a hundred years to whether pacifism during the First World War was the right thing or the wrong thing, he is part of our legacy here. His face adorns our sanctuary. We see him right behind the musicians. He's right there. He's been with us for decades. He would return for a second nine-year term. 10 years after he was officially moved on, moved out. Now, today's conflict in Ukraine has inspired similar conversations about the role that America should play in the world. What should we do with this European war? How should we respond? Similar diversity exists, perhaps with slightly less intensity as those conversations during Hall's day. Most everyone agrees, of course, that Ukraine is sympathetic, but some in America want us doing more. 
They wonder about a no-fly zone and whether that should be declared, or whether troops should be sent over, or planes, or some way of more directly resisting the Russian advance. Others worry that we could be drawn into a larger war. They worry about the threat of a nuclear exchange that could devastate civilization as we know it. They suggest that a war in a far-off country is not our concern. Throughout Unitarian Universalist history, progressive people of faith have been skeptical of American involvement abroad. Paul had good company in progressive circles, including one of the other members of the Conscience of New York trio. There are good reasons for this, why progressive people of faith have been skeptical. Perhaps most obviously that America has an abysmal track record of successfully intervening in foreign conflicts. From Vietnam to Iraq, forceful American involvement seems to create more destruction and death than it prevents, inspiring quagmires and backlashes and chaos. These failures are compounded by what are easy to perceive as disingenuous reasons for getting involved in the first place. While we often shroud our reasons in language of human rights, saving lives, protecting democracy, and saving freedom, our foreign involvement with a deeper look is more often self-interested. We overturn dem democratically elected governments in Latin America to fight socialism, but it was really to protect American corporate interests. We invaded Iraq, maybe because of terrorists or maybe weapons of mass destruction, but maybe it was really more about oil and money and a vendetta. Even our quieter, more subtle but equally powerful monetary policies, those things that don't make the front page of the paper, but involve tremendous amounts of money, used to open up developing countries for the benefit of American corporations and their shoulder shareholders, used under the guise of free trade and economic development. So progressive people of faith recognize that our motives are not always pure. We know because if they were, we would have sent troops to Rwanda in the 90s to prevent the genocide there. Or we're currently orchestrating the takedown of the Minamese government, currently committing genocide right now. But we are not. Another important reason for skepticism from the American left is that America does not seem in a position to preach healthy democracy or human rights. What claim, they ask, can America make to democracy in the wake of January 6th, in the wake of rampant voter suppression across this country, in the wake of the gerrymandering that we see, or a world that imprisons more people than any other country, despite that America's population does not reflect that. And those people do not vote. They think, suggest that we have no moral superiority, no leg to stand on, and maybe should get our own house together before we start preaching on foreign soil. These are powerful, wise, and important critiques. 
and there are many others. There is great reason to stress humanity, humility, and caution. But I don't think the answer can only be that America withdraws into itself, that we stop believing in its highest, even unrealized principles. The choice must not be between America the global policeman, America the imperialist, America the colonizer on one hand, and America the uninvolved, the self-interested, the America that does nothing and cares little as the world struggles and the people suffer. This is a false dichotomy. It's a needless either-or that speaks to our hyper-partisan, polarized world. It lets us into a place that makes us trapped in dreadfully unappealing and hopeless choices. It doesn't have to be either or. So I want us to reframe the question, to imagine a different framing, a third way, between imperialism on one side and moral abdication on the other. Now we've heard today is a holiday, and it's actually several. It's May Day, it's Beltane, and it is International Workers' Day. International Workers' Day is less known in the United States. We have our Labor Day, which is an important day, but International Workers' Day is distinct and distinctly important. It understands and suggests something that we in America often forget, which is that our lives and our struggles are not ours alone, that we are part of a global system and structure that impacts us and everybody else. International Workers' Day suggests that global problems are also America's problems and vice versa. The same forces that lead to American poverty lead to global poverty. These are the same forces that force Americans to work two or three jobs to make and meet, to support their family, to pay rent. These same forces are those that force Chinese workers into sweatshops. These are the same forces that work to lie and undermine the people's voice in America and are doing the same in France and Russia and India and all over the world. These are the same forces that suppress the rights of the Amazon workers in Staten Island who are unionizing and fighting for their rights, rights that everyone around the world deserve to have. A system that keeps American poor, but also those in Guatemala and Mexico and the Philippines and Ukraine. We Americans often believe overtly or subconsciously that we are different, our problems are different. Maybe we are better or we're immune from these other people out in the world struggling. But that is an illusion. We believe John Steinbeck's quip that Americans are just temporarily embarrassed millionaires rather than exploited workers. But most of us Americans and most of us even here have more in common with the exploited worker than the corporate owner. Most of us are closer to being homeless than being Elon Musk. It's true whether we are workers or a union member or something else. We need to listen to International Workers' Day, which reminds us that this, there is a global struggle for human rights, 
for economic dignity, for living wages, and affordable health care. It urges us to see that we are part of that struggle and that war, no matter our nationality, fighting against a global system that greedily hoards money and power in the hands of a few and deprives a decent life for everybody else. While it is clear that Americans have certain privileges that others in the world do not, let us also be clear that those privileges are not readily apparent if you are living paycheck to paycheck and have a family to feed, if you can't pay for your insulin, if you worry about losing your home and have only the street to fall back on, or if you're already on that street, if a call to the police inspires not comfort, but fear, the privileges of being American feel hollow. These are American problems, but they are also global problems, and they are a result of global powerful forces that hurt and harm us all. These are systems of corporate greed and oligarchy. They are products of an anti-democratic, pro-authoritarian forces disguised so often as populism and patriotism, but are actually tools of fascism, control, and wealth hoarding. What America needs is not superficial nationalism or a naive belief in our own specialness or purity, some kind of white knight mentality for the rest of the world, believing in our purity and benevolence. What it needs is to join the battle against these fundamentally toxic forces. We need to be in solidarity with those all over the world who are struggling to win their rights and freedoms not to control or dominate or to serve our own interests, but because we see our struggle in theirs and theirs and ours and that we are siblings in their fight, in our fight. We need to be humble, open to learning and listening, cognizant of our own history and hubris, but that we are together in that struggle. Now, I know that our country is not in a place yet where we can forcefully or consistently be a good partner in solidarity. We are too divided. We are too controlled by special interests and toxic falsehoods, too busy fighting this war at home. We are not yet trustworthy enough. But that does not mean that we cannot dream of it being different. It does not mean we can't still do good if the opportunity arises like it has in Ukraine. It does not mean we can or should deny that America has tremendous global power that could be used for good, for the right reasons. On International Workers' Day, let us paraphrase the old Union cheer written in 1843 by French Peruvian activist and feminist the mother of feminism, as she has been called, Flora Tristan, that the people of the world should unite. It is through this unity, based not on domination or imperialism or colonialism or misguided naivete or confidence in our own virtue, but solidarity. Solidarity 
that we all can win a better world. Whether we are working in a sweatshop in Indonesia or an Amazon factory in Staten Island, we all deserve fair wages. We all deserve paid time off and health care for our families and clean water. And those are not victories that we have won in this country or anywhere in this world yet. Pacifist though he was, I think Paul would have been down for that kind of fight. I think he would look down proudly on us today for waging it. May we join in with humility whenever, wherever we can. Amen, and may it be so.